This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. So, I mean, I think yeah, this is the way to correct a lot of those issues. And the nice thing is nothing that you and I just talked about is partisan. You got Republicans and Democrats that want to restore the Gulf, right? They want to restore the Mississippi. They, you know, folks may disagree about how to pay for it. No, I mean, we saw just in the last week, Aaron, I mean, we saw one of the most liberal members of Congress join one of the most conservative members of Congress on a plan to restore the, uh, the salmon runs on the, on the Snake River in, in, the, in the Columbia Basin. You know, anytime, you know, kind of as odd a couple as you could come together with Mike Simpson and, uh, and, and Earl Blumenauer, but, you know, I think folks are beginning to realize that they, you know, there's lots of things that folks can fight on in politics, but conservation is a space that folks can come together. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. Today we're going to talk about an interesting subject that is definitely been in the news lately and has morphed a little bit and we've had some recent news and we have our resident expert on even better to talk about it. Today we have Colin O'Mara, our president and CEO at NWF with us. How, how's it going, Colin? Good, Aaron. Thanks for having me on again. You're welcome. And uh, we wanted to have you on because we have recently seen the plan come out called Conserve and Restore America the Beautiful. And it is the newest iteration of what was formerly known as 30 by 30. And this has a lot of implications for wildlife, land management, et cetera. So we wanted to, to relate what this means for hunters and anglers in our audience. And so you have been you know, helping design this thing over the years and have been a, a key player as this thing is developed and, and obviously one of the best voices to talk to about this. So thanks for joining us. And uh, we'll just jump right in, Colin. Um, but first, 
we always talk about what we've been doing outside. So real quick, you've been getting outside at all lately? A, a, a little bit. So I, my, uh, my little one likes to, it's beginning. So my three-year-old, I started to get into fishing like a little bit. So like, this is kind of out of season kind of stuff. So like, you know, never, never, no, no, don't, no, not taking anything. We've been on the water a couple of times, but I was supposed to get out turkey hunting with, uh, with some folks down in Louisiana and I just couldn't cause of COVID restrictions. And so yeah, I haven't been out in, um, in, it's been a while. So hopefully, hopefully soon. Well, yeah. Don't forget about the outdoors. I know you have to work so much that <laughs> you don't get as much time away as you'd like, but uh, it's the good stuff. I've been out with my boy turkey hunting a few times and it's starting to be fishing season around here. So I've been getting yeah. out myself, but yeah, Crane, yeah, Jeff Crane and Witt and those guys were all down in, down in Louisiana, um, with a bunch of the forestry guys and I just felt bad. And then I realized I'm the only one with little kids, like all their kids are graduated. <laughs> and so I'm still <laughs> trying to figure that out, but I want to figure out a way to make it a little more family friendly, but yeah, let's, let's get into it. Yeah. That'd be a fun one. Uh, well, good. So the 30-30 concept, now conserving and restoring America the beautiful. There's lots of misconceptions about what it is. Maybe we can just start with your broad overview about where this thing came from, what it was designed and intended to do, and go from there. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, the, the science is pretty clear that you know, we've lost uh, a lot of habitat over the, the last you know, century. And, you know, I mean, our population has gone up, you know, from 136 million, 138 million in the 1930s to, you know, 330 million today. Um, and that the, the implications of losing so much habitat are, are pretty devastating for, for wildlife and for biodiversity more broadly. And that there's, like, there's places we've done incredible work. I mean, all the work with NACA, like saving wetlands, the work we've done to, you know, forest management in some places, obviously there's a lot of work to do there. No, we've done pretty well by you know ducks and 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 uh, in many cases turkeys and mule deer and and pronghorn and, and white-tailed deer, but there's a whole lot of other species that are in trouble. And the idea was to have a, a bold national goal to try to to try to restore habitat on all kinds of lands, private lands, public lands, working lands, you know, more, more traditional conservation lands, um, and make it a, a national commitment that's collaborative and that it's um, that's really trying to bring people together. You know, kind of across differences across the country, and, and like I mean, just some real talk at the beginning. Like I know there are a lot of folks and a lot of your listeners who are probably a little skeptical of you know what does a Biden administration mean for hunting and fishing. Um, and I think you know what you see in this plan, what you see in some recent actions, is an administration that's first of all listening to hunters and anglers, you know, in in, in real meaningful ways, um, but also taking some concrete steps. I mean, just in the last few weeks, right? I mean, they just announced you know two million more acres of of access opportunities for hunting and fishing on uh, national wildlife refuges. They, they made big changes to the make big improvements and restoration for the most part for the, the conservation reserve program. And so, you know, I'm hoping the folks are seeing that the, uh, the commitments that were made during the campaign are turning into the real, real progress and real, real commitments. And you see that in the America, the beautiful plan where, you know, this is really focused on you know, restoration and, um, and, and access. And in a collaboration, um, you know, much more so than, you know, regulation or, you know, in some cases, you know, top-down designations that, you know, have made folks on the ground you know, upset in the past. This is a way to you know, do it through, do it through bringing people together as opposed to uh, dictating from on high. Yeah, I think that's, those are all good points. I think, uh, you know, habitat equals opportunity for the sporting community, right? So when we restore habitat, that means more more animals on the landscape, more opportunity to get out there. I think we all know well the the loss of hunting and the loss of hunters nationwide. Um, sometimes I wonder if that's the case here in Colorado. I see a lot more guys it seems than I normally did, but uh, 
we know that, you know, you need a good spot to go. You need access. And I think this plan gets us there. Let's talk about how we got this, this plan, you know, where, what's the original genesis of the idea. And then, you know, take us up to the moment to where we have what we have now that was released, you know, last week. Sure. I mean, so there have been, there have been studies, you know, over the past 10, 15 years looking at, um, this concept of trying to you know, conserve enough land for, for nature and restore enough land for nature. And, you know, there's E.O. Wilson's book around kind of half, you know, kind of try to get to 50%. Um, there's other studies that are, you know, kind of, that, that was a kind of a longer term plan. You know, this is a more, a more near term plan, but the idea that, you know, at a time when one third of all wildlife species are at heightened risk of extinction at a time when, you know, we're, you know, building you know, kind of additional, you know, housing units, and not just in the U.S., I mean, kind of around the world, as the population is exploding to, you know, seven, you know, eventually to seven, eight billion people, um, that if we're not conscientiously trying to, you know, restore and conserve lands, that we won't have a lot of the, uh, the amazing biodiversity that I think we all, we all get to enjoy. And so um, that was the original genesis. And then, you know, as ideas, you know, kind of go from the, you know, the written page or the you know, kind of the talking point into a campaign setting that this was something that President Biden committed to during the, uh, the presidential campaign. And then in his, on his second week in office, he issued an executive order um, and said, basically charged the Department of Interior and the Department of Agriculture to come up with plans for how best to, uh, to meet this goal that, that he had set. And they went through a really you know, inclusive stakeholder process. They got a lot of input from a lot of different parts of the community. The hunting, the hunting and fishing community did a hell of a job. They pulled together this Hunt Fish 3030 document that Aaron, I know you played a leadership role in and working with our friends at Congressional Sportsman Foundation and Rough Grouse and a whole bunch of and, you know, uh, TRCP and, a whole, and ASA and other other great partners um, to basically make sure that access and that, you know, that the role of, of hunters and anglers, especially the role as, as, as great conservationists, were, were central to the plan. And, and you saw the same kind of comments coming in from you know, the, the farming community, from the ranching community, from the forestry community. Um, you know, from folks that wanted more access for different types of outdoor activities, folks that were more focused on, you know, maybe, maybe more strictly the biodiversity pieces. Some folks were concerned about equity and, you know, making sure everyone has access to the outdoors and not just folks that, you know, live in the great state of Colorado. Um, and so really make sure that there are opportunities for everybody. And I think to their credit, the administration did a great job weaving together all of these ideas and not kind of picking among different constituencies, but trying to find solutions that really lifted up the best of, of all the ideas. And so, you know, we'll talk more about this thing specifically, but the fact that this is, you know, both public and private, both conservation and working lands. I mean, this is, it's a way to really unite the country um, under a, a common umbrella of having restoration and kind of collaborative on the ground work, be the, uh, the organizing principle and kind of that, that place-based lo locally driven conservation, you know, is always much more effective than, you know, trying to decide things just from, uh, you know, from an office in Washington, DC. Yeah, thanks. I think one of the things too that was originally and maybe still is a distinction that you know some people get hung up on is the protect versus conserve. Right? I think protect, you know, if you look up the dictionary, you think you want to protect and hold hold something close, but conserve means you still have an opportunity to use it in certain ways. And I think that's one of the ones that the sporting community was particularly interested in because there's so many lands like you talked about in the farm bill or the CRP program or conservation easements or walk-in access areas that they know as really good habitat that supports a lot of good wildlife species uh, that is, is really critical to, to the conservation portfolio in the United States. Talk about that, how you saw that develop 
because that's one that, man, I, I still am surprised by how much people get hung up on that little distinction, even though I know why it just seems like it carries too much weight. Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. And then look, and this is one thing that, you know, I think, you know, your, your leadership was important. You know, Tracy Stone Manning, you know, it was, it was, it was running a huge chunk of the, the federation's, you know, policy work and public lands work when this, these ideas were being formulated. And this was a big, a big issue of debate, um, you know, kind of within the bigger you know, NGO community. And, you know, and it's interesting because even during the campaign, um, you know, this concept of conserve and restore um, being a more inclusive definition, a definition that includes, you know, restoration and active management and, um, you know, and, and that isn't limited to just, you know, preservation or protection, um, gained, gained, gained traction. And when the president issued his executive order, um, it was framed around, around conservation, um, this idea, like you said, of, of, of kind of sustainable and wise use um, and not, not simply um, kind of a designation and, and, and separation um, and kind of the removal of people from the, the landscape. And so obviously it's a much more inclusive definition. I mean, I'm biased because, you know, we were very much on the, on the side of where, where it landed, but I, I think it is a, it's a more inclusive approach to uh, bringing people together because it shows that, you know, we as, as, as a species also, right, have a role to play in, in actively enhancing these places. And, and look, from a, from an ecological point of view, if it was just about protection, if it was just about, you know, lines on maps and designations, um, we wouldn't have actually gotten the ecological uh, imp improvements that we need. I mean, if things were fine, you know, a bunch of creep species wouldn't be in trouble right now. So if it was about, you know, just having another you know, line drawn somewhere, um, you know, that would that would assume that we're doing better than we are. And the truth is right now, um, we got a lot of public lands that are massively um, in desperate need of restoration. We got a lot of private lands that are in desperate need of restoration. And so there's enough work to go around. And it's that enhancement that I think is is so critical to the the vision um, in a way that I'm hoping, you know, kind of sh sh kind of shines through the entire document. Yeah, I, I agree. Let's let's talk about the um, the overall benefit to hunters and anglers and how you see this being something that over the next handful of years, we'll start seeing habitat improvement and perhaps some new opportunity and things like that. Maybe just spell out a little bit of what you see there. Yeah, I mean, there's there's an there's an obvious benefit around access, and I think you're seeing the administration already lean in about you know, more acreage. But I think the most exciting long term um, piece is actually the the enhancements of uh, the enhancements of access in terms of facilities, but also the habitat. And you know, kind of channeling my friends at you know Wild Turkey Federation, you know, kind of save the habitat, save the hunt. I mean, if we do a good job on on habitat restoration, I think we create a lot more opportunities, as you said in your open. And so, you know, one of the things that I think maybe didn't get as much coverage is how this plan intersects with some of the infrastructure investments that President Biden's talked about through the America Job, American Jobs Plan. And, you know, and in that plan, when we think infrastructure, you know, some folks think roads and bridges and you know, water infrastructure or you know, uh, transmission lines or, or, or broadband. But you know, there's also a huge natural infrastructure component of this and, and thinking about how we invest in restoring our forests and our wetlands and our grasslands and our shrublands and our coasts and our you know, inland waterways, um, thinking about how we restore and reconnect you know, fragmented habitat or corridors that have been you know, degraded in different ways, how we remediate you know, soils that have been uh, contaminated, whether that's uh, orphan wells or abandoned mines, um, whether it's hard rock or uranium or coal. Um, I mean, there's just a lot of work to do. Um, you know, drought places that have had massive drought conditions where the hydrology of entire systems have been screwed up because of, you know, the way that we've you know, in, in some cases, you know, deforested up, up, upstream so we don't have the storage and the, and the you know, natural infrastructure to improve uh, kind of water density and, and different types of ecosystems. And so you look at all those different challenges and 
I mean, this isn't just a, a plan for, you know, kind of how we do our work together. It's an investment strategy. I mean, there's a couple hundred billion dollars worth of work that's kind of spelled out in this in this document um, that you know, hopefully we'll have you know, broad support across Republicans and Democrats in the Congress to try to put together. But, you know, it really is the reason I think it's so important to, to sportsmen is that and sportswomen is that, you know, they've been the primary funders of a lot of this work. You know, we've all been the primary funders of our excise taxes. Um, for for generations, I mean, going back to Dingle Johnson, Dingle Johnson passing in '52, or Pittman Robertson passing in '37, um, it's a way to bring a lot more resources to the table, and I think that's where you know that's where we all should get excited because you know if there's better habitat, like you said, or you're going to have you know more critters. Um, you know, I, I want to make sure we're conserving you know the full diversity of wildlife, but that's going to be good on a whole bunch of levels for a whole bunch of things we hunt and fish, and so it, it's not just about you know a few more acres that you can have access to. It's about increasing the number of places you can have those, you know, those, those memories that last a lifetime. And I think if we do that well, we'll do right by the uh, by the by the wildlife and the and the fish and the plants that we care about, as well as by the next generation. Hopefully, get some more folks more excited about spending more time outdoors, as a lot of folks have experienced during this pandemic. Yeah, that's a good point, Colin. And um, glad you mentioned the infrastructure. And you know, maybe it's worth giving an example of what that might look like. I've used, you know, culverts, for instance, when we improve culverts and put, you know, fish passage underneath roads where there wasn't before, then all of a sudden you open up new habitat. Um, And those help for keeping the road from being washed out and they keep the bridges safe and all these other things. That's one example. Think, give us some other examples of how you might see some of these restoration projects that dovetail with the infrastructure, you know, conversations are being had. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you just a really concrete example. I mean, right now, we're negotiating language for somewhere between a quarter billion and a half billion dollar uh, program in the transportation part of the, the package around wildlife crossings. And the idea of, you know, kind of restoring these habitat, you know, that have been bisected by massive, you know, highways in some parts of the country. And you think of like Highway 80 in Wyoming, for example, that, you know, has kind of cut, you know, mule deer migrations in, in half in some in some places. And, and at the same time, you know, it's a, an investment that has huge wildlife benefits, right? I mean, you, you and I can talk, you know, till we're blue in the face about the importance of connectivity and you know, connecting summer ranges and winter ranges and kind of thinking through the migration. It's also a huge savings. I mean, if you can avoid collisions with these massive uncolates, <laughs> you know, in, in ways that, you know, reduce, you know, property damage and save lives and, you know, hundreds of people die every year from you know, wildlife collision. And so it's a way to kind of solve multiple problems at the same time. And, you know, we'll have healthier herds, right? I mean, there's times where you have these mass die-offs of, you know, mule deer in particular, if they can't get far enough south, it gets just too cold up north, right? I mean, like if they literally can't get to their, their, uh, their, the rest of their winter range, um, you know, we've seen instances of, you know, huge, huge mortality. So, I mean, and that's just one example. I mean, there's examples around forest management. There's about a $60 billion plan right now to restore our, our national forest. We got about 85 million, 82 million acres of national forest that's in desperate need of restoration activities. I think there's opportunities around grassland restorations. Like we have great programs for wetland conservation. We don't really have the same thing for grasslands. So we're, we've been pushing this North American Grasslands Conservation Act to kind of mirror the, the great work that, you know, us and Ducks Unlimited and Delta Waterfowl and other have been doing for years with wetland conservation. There's opportunities. And we'll talk about wildlife in a second, but, you know, things like the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, um, you know, try to restore a bunch of habitat through co- collaborative, proactive work on the, on the ground, you know, working with states and tribes and territories as a way to save species before they need to be listed as endangered. So I think there's a ton of these. And, and frankly, everything I just mentioned in that list is pretty bipartisan. I mean, there's a bill that we were working on 
you know, our good friend Bruce Westerman from from Arkansas that's looking at um, how to this Trillion Trees initiative, how to drive you know more investment into our into reforestation. There's a lot of focus around private lands and public lands. Um, you know, working with Democrats like Mike Bennett, but Republicans like Mike Simpson on, on forestry. So these are the kind of issues that I think, you know, hopefully they they are a big part of the infrastructure package. Um, and again, I mean, they're not roads and bridges, but you know, for a for a family that's living near the wildland or urban interface, that you know, it's not going to have the damage to their property because we did a good job, you know, managing and restoring the forest that otherwise could be a tinderbox for a, a mega fire. Um, you know, that, that that's going to feel pretty pretty much like infrastructure to to them. And I think the more we're talking about it that way, the uh, the better, more successful we're going to be. Yeah, those are all good points. I love the, I love hearing you say all of those, and then thinking about too all of the human benefit, right? If you, if you restore forests, then you have healthier watersheds, you have cleaner water supply coming down the mountain to, to all these municipalities. If you do wildlife crossings, like you said, then, you know, less people die in car accidents. If you do wetlands restoration, then you're of course cleaning the water and keeping pollutants out of the rivers and so on. There's just so many good benefits to doing it this way. And I think that's the hardest part for people to grapple with is how does the infrastructure and the civilian climate conservation core and this and everything dovetail because so many things are happening at once. And those are just yeah, some good examples, you know? Yeah. And I think, and look, in every one of those examples you just gave, they're all jobs, right? I mean, like, I mean, I think we can create about 3.5 million jobs just in restoration resilience projects over the next five years. That's massive, right? And those are jobs in a lot of places that have been harder hit by the pandemic. They're places that have had high unemployment before the pandemic. You know, I mean, if, imagine if we invested, you know, a couple billion dollars on on reclamation in Appalachia, right? And you're all of a sudden you're putting folks to work, you know, cleaning up mines, creating opportunities, you know, from in Western Pennsylvania and Southern Ohio and in West Virginia and in, in West in Western uh, in Western Virginia as well. Um, you know, I mean, those are huge numbers of jobs in places that have been hard hit. And again, it's not going to, that's not a silver bullet to like revitalize the entire economy. There's a lot more that needs to be done, but it is a way to put a lot of folks to work, you know, in good paying jobs. The thing I love about restoration investments, they actually create more jobs, um, kind of per dollar than almost any other kind of investment because almost all the money goes into labor. And of course you need some equipment and things like that, but compared to like road construction where you spend a ton of money on asphalt or concrete or, you know, whatever the, or, or steel up at the bridge. Um, and again, those are important things to buy also, but in this case, the goal is just to get huge numbers of jobs. Um, you know, restoration is one of the best opportunities. So, I mean, if we're able to make sure the final plan includes, you know, a couple hundred billion dollars of investment, it's about 17.5 jobs per million dollars. And, you know, that's a, a pretty good way to put a whole, whole generation of folks to work, which then feeds right into the civilian conservation core, the civilian climate core that we've been talking about, you know, for a while now as a way to get more young folks and you know, returning Americans and others to, uh, to work doing some important work that, as you said perfectly, is that has all these additional benefits for both, you know, for people, for, for wildlife, for nature, for uh, local economies. I mean, it's just, there's, I don't know, there's no bigger win, 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 win. Yeah. I really like the idea of depressed communities that, you know, oftentimes a depressed community ha is that way because some of in environmental degradation, you know, you can look at refinery towns or towns that have, like you mentioned, West Virginia, coal, and then you fix that community back up in, in their, in their, you know, their, their natural spaces that often revitalizes your downtowns. Now there's jobs. Now there's people, there's all those, those benefits. And I, I really like thinking of some, some downtrodden place that, you know, 20 years from now people came along and fixed and it's revitalized and the habitat's doing better and people are doing better. I, I really like that, that vision. 
Well, and it's a great way to diversify economies too, right? Because I mean, all of a sudden, if it's not just about, you know, a certain type of energy development, but you're also, you know, have more tourism, you also, you know, maybe you're a place that more folks, maybe they can telecommute can work from, and all of a sudden now you have a little innovation economy. And, you know, like you said, then you're clean, have resources to clean up the downtown and then you're off to the races, right? I mean, and there's, you know, I, I still think that, you know, natural resource restoration and remediation is, you know, one of the best economic development strategies there is. Um, and, you know, there's a bunch of good examples and I'd love to see, you know, thousands more in the, in the coming years. Yeah. There's some great return on the dollar numbers I've heard. You know, uh, LWCF's one of them, right? For every $3 or something, uh, for every $1 you spend on LWCF projects, it's something that turns like 3 or $4 to the, to the economy, the local economy. Every year. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, so now we have this big, broad outline. If folks haven't seen it, look it up. Conserving and Restoring America, the Beautiful. It's a plan. It's a, it's a handful of pages. There's six principles in there. We have a broad outline, kind of where we're going to focus. What do you see happening next? How are we going to get this thing moving, implement it, and make it happen. Oh, my God. I said the most beautiful – sorry, I said the most beautiful raptor just landed. It's a, it's a Cooper's hawk. Sorry, um, oh, just nice. outside my, it's all my right. window. It's yeah, good. but like I'm, 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 I'm on my daughter's little playhouse. Like That's like eight feet from me. I just never <laughs> – I don't typically get you know, massive raptors where, where, where we are. Um, just a beautiful Cooper's hawk. Um, <laughs> sorry for the distraction. It's a good, a good distraction. One. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think I think the next thing is going to be um, the the push into into Congress on money. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of like local conversations that are going to happen. There's going to be a big stakeholder process where people are going to be asked to ask for their ideas and their priorities at like the state and local level. Um, so there'll be a ton of outreach coming in the in the weeks ahead. And and but then I think a lot of the, the conversation is going to is going to on the federal side. It's going to it's going to shift to how do we make sure there's the resources to provide the tools that we need for the uh, the commitments that are made in the plan and. And Aaron, you mentioned the, like the six priority areas. And just for, for your listeners, you know, one is creating more more parks um, and, and more safe outdoor spaces, especially in nature-deprived communities. So that, that's one of the principles. Another one is supporting tribally-led conservation and restoration priorities. And we know that you know, tribes are kind of the original stewards of our land. You know, many tribes do a phenomenal job, and they've been massively under-resourced, which is why things like the Recovering America's Wildlife Act has a big tribal title in it to try to make sure there's more resources for that type of work. The, uh, the third one is expanding collaborative conservation for fish and wildlife habitats and corridors. And we've talked a lot about that, but, you know, having, you know, things like the Recovering America's Wildlife Act, implementing the state wildlife action plans, the corridors work and the, and the crossings work we've talked about, um, but doing it through you know, collaboration on the ground to get the real habitat um, project getting projects moving at scale is going to be important. The fourth one is access, increasing access for outdoor recreation. Yeah, the fifth one is around incentivizing and rewarding voluntary conservation efforts. And this, and they actually, you know, they, they talk about hunting and fishing and ranching and farming and forest management as part of that. And then they talk about, you know, kind of creating more jobs. And, we, you know, we talked about this a lot by investing in restoration and resilience. Um, you know, some of this language is going to sound fairly familiar about the Civilian Conservation Corps because we've been talking about it for a while. But, you know, in each of those six buckets, um, there's a lot of work to do. And, you know, one of the blessings that, that I think you know, the conservation community should be really proud of is the victory last year in the in the Great American Outdoors Act, which fully funded the Land and Water Conservation Fund and provided will provide you know, more than six billion dollars of, of resources for nine point five billion dollars, sorry, of resources for our parks and BLM lands and forest service lands and, and refuges and uh, Bureau of Indian Schools, Indian Education Schools. And that that money's already available. Right. So like they can start applying those resources that so many of, of your listeners worked so hard to secure last year towards a lot of these priorities. There's a lot of money in the existing budget. 
that can be that can be applied. But I, I think the next the next two pieces are going to be making sure that you're going to a lot more local input on on priorities um, that kind of conform with these principles and these pillars, and then also having the resources to make sure that the uh, that the restoration is taking place at a time we're going to need to create a whole bunch of jobs because you know, even today, as, as fast as the economy is coming back, there's still eight fewer eight thousand eight million fewer people working today than we're working before the pandemic. So you know, there's never been a better time to make some of these investments to to get people back to work. Wow. Yeah. I like, uh, I like the idea of kind of a, a generational just game changer on so many different fronts. Uh, we sorely need it right now. We need a reset on our, you know, on our economy and our, and our health. And this has health benefits too. The more people get out, the more, more, uh, there's healthy ecosystems near where they live. There's a lot of good health outcomes for, for people. And then the jobs and stuff, of course. And, and obviously, for those of us who love to hunt and fish so much, uh, there's going to be a lot of great benefit there too. Talk a little yeah, bit and about. I'm, oh, and I'm, go ahead. And I'm hoping that. Oh, sorry, I was just going to say. And I'm, I'm hoping. I mean, we've had so many folks kind of introduced to hunting and fishing for the first time with the pandemic, and I'm just hoping that like that spark continues. Um, you know, and I'm sure you're seeing more, more, more weekend warriors in your neck of the woods in Colorado. You know, some of which is a good thing, and some of which need to go find find different spaces. But uh, yeah, I think there's, you know, there's there's an opportunity, right? And if we, if we miss this, you know, moment where I think a lot of folks did, were able to connect to the outdoors. Um, if we don't figure out a way to harness that into a, the kind of generational change that you're talking about, um, we'll miss an opportunity. So I want to make sure we do seize it. Yeah. Thanks for that. And so I think the obvious thing to ask now is, you know, what, what should people be doing? If I, if I'm average Joe or Jane Hunter Fisher person, and I want to help and see this thing move, what do I do? Yeah, I think I think one of the best things you can do is actually, is actually think about your your priorities. Like, what are the places that you think you know, with a little more investment, um, think things that have been maybe neglected over the years, all things you've always wanted to get done, um, whether it's a restoration plan or resilience plan, or maybe it's a maybe it's a remediation plan, um, and and start making noise about it, because I, I do think that the the projects that are kind of locally driven that have broad local support. Are going to be the ones that get funded first. I mean, I think there's going to be a huge amount of expectation on public input. You know, I also think you know working with organizations like the National Wildlife Federation or state affiliates, you know, partner organizations in the hunting and fishing community, um, you know, in, in using those, engaging with those networks to kind of think about how you, you lift up different priorities to you know, at the state level or at the national level is going to be really important. Um, I mean, one thing I'm really heartened by, Aaron was the, uh, the strong statements of support from so many of the, the hunting and fishing uh, organiz- entities. I mean, the leading organizations just put out great statements saying how excited they were about, you know, so many parts of the collaboration and kind of access focus of the plan. And they also acknowledge that there are some questions still, and that's fair because, you know, it's a 24-page plan and it's a big country, so there's obviously questions to be answered. Yeah. But I think, I think, I mean, my, my message, folks, is get involved and be specific. You know, if there's a if there's a creek that you know, you know, if you just had a little bit of money, um, you know, to be you know cleaned up, or you know, there's a abandoned mine that you know if it was just cleaned up would create you know great habitat for, you know, I don't know, say if you have a mountaintop mine or whatever for elk, or if it's you know something for you know an issue with fish passage. I mean, I just think the, the now is the time for folks because everyone's got their little list, right? I mean, I have my list in my head in Delaware, right? I there's like about 15 things that drive me nuts that if yeah. there was just a little bit of money spent. You know, it would make a huge bit of difference for me. It's like some of the shad runs that we have on the uh, Brandywine. We got these dams that that are not—they're obsolete. I mean, they're, they serve no function at this point. They go back to like you know, textile and gunpowder mills from 200, 200 years ago. Um, and pulling those out would actually bring back the shad runs. And we've been doing it again—not hugely expensive, but 
pretty big deal and could actually create a, a little micro you know, fishing economy here for folks. Um, you know, that would, that would you know, create some jobs and create some opportunities and put some, put some protein on the plate. So, I mean, I think those are the kind of places where I would just encourage folks to get specific. And so, you know, we're talking to a lot of our, our affiliates about that. Like, you know, what are those priorities? Like, it's, it's, it's fun to talk in generalities, but, you know, are there parcels that, you know, that should be priorities for LWCF? Are there, are there places where, you know, working with private landowners to compensate them for maybe a little more access? Um, are there restoration priorities that, that folks have had for a long time that all of a sudden now have a, uh, have a place to land and a place to be funded? Like, that's what I really encourage all your listeners to be thinking about. Yeah, those are good points. And you, you said one word that we've used, and I want to make sure people understand, and that's resilience. Right? I think that one's a little ambiguous to some people. Like, what, how would this create more resilience? Tell us about that a little bit more, because I, I love that one more than anything, how that if you, you know, build up an ecosystem, how it's better prepared to handle stresses. You know, talk about that. Yeah, I know. That's a big one. Yeah. I appreciate it too, because I think it's one of those words that means different things to everybody. Um, yeah. And so the, the way I think about it is it's, uh, it's ecosystems are more resilient if they're able, as you said, to kind of handle that kind of dynamic change. And you think about, like, let's just use forests in the Northwest, for example, or the, in the, the, the Rocky, the, in the Northern Rockies, you know, as pine bark beetles, right, we're kind of infesting, you know, the, the, the systems and you're seeing, you know, the spread of different kinds of, of, of you know, that, in that case, kind of a pest species. Um, infiltrate you know different types of, of ecosystems where the the volume the kind of the sheer quantity of them was a fraction in earlier generations um but all of a sudden now you're having a catastrophic impact on you know on on, on, on you know kind of killing trees and, and kind of degrading the overall ecosystem thinking through how you both address the root cause um which in some cases could be it could be a it could be a temperature shift it could be a change in um you know different invasives that have been in, introduced whether there's plants or animals um it could be Kind of different types of you know, land uses um, in, in some cases, but thinking through how you how you make the system more dynamic. So in this case, you know, having healthier forests, you know, in some cases, you know, could mean um, accelerating the the kind of the evolution of an ecosystem as the temperatures shift a little bit. You know, I mean, we're seeing systems kind of push further north in some places. So it's sort of that, that Wayne Gretzky quote of kind of skating where the puck is going as opposed to where it was. And kind of our, our chief scientist Bruce Stein talks a lot about this, right? Like kind of managing into the change. So you don't have these catastrophic cliffs where like a bunch of habitat dies off. You know, for example, I mean, I'll use a, a Delaware example just because I'm here right now. But, you know, we've got a whole bunch of places where you got saltwater intrusion and you've seen like a little bit of sea level rise um, or more, more extreme storms leading to massive, you know, die-offs of, of, of trees that are just a little bit upland um, because they're not kind of salt tolerant at all. Uh, and again, I'm not proposing, you know, planting, you know, <laughs> you know some of the, the nastier, you know, more salt tolerant plants, but Kind of thinking through how if the system is more brackish, right? If the system is more has more salt in the system, like you know, what is the type of ecosystem that makes sense? You know, is it more like Spartina grasses that that have the ability to withstand that kind of increased salinity compared to you know more freshwater plants that you know need that that purity and can't handle the the salt? And so it's a way to think, and that was, was kind of a convoluted answer, but I think it's a way to think of this: the system is just being more more adaptive to the changes. So whether that's you know more extreme weather and precipitation or you know, say hurricanes or more fire resilient, or in some cases, drought resilient, um, kind of thinking through and look, a lot of it's just having more native plants, right? And ripping out a lot of like, you know, the invasive cheat grasses that we have that are tinder, right? When these, you know, when the, when the lands get dry and, you know, they, the fires start, I mean, it's often, you know, it's often human stupidity combined with, you know, kind of tinderbox conditions. Um, but a lot of those are either invasive or non-native. 
um, you know, plant species that are serving as the, the fuel um, as these as these mega fires get get roaring. And so I think, think if you think of it as, as, as being able to adapt to change, that's probably the best way to think about it. Yeah, those those are good examples. One of my favorite examples to think about is the Mississippi River. And, uh, you know, it's been dammed and dredged and, and there's locks and there's a lot of vegetation been stripped out and it's not braided anymore. And you can imagine just as a, as a, someone who cares about say waterfowl or fish, if you take down some of those and you get a bunch more vegetation on the banks and you allow the thing to braid back a little bit and create some backwaters, well, that's all habitat. That's all better for fish, better for wildlife. And those kinds of things are also help with if there is a big flood or if there is a hurricane, then it's better prepared to handle those impacts and then therefore protect, you know, cities and places like that from it because there's places for the water to flow. There's more vegetation stopping the biggest wind events, all kinds of things. So that one, you know, being such a iconic big river, our biggest river in the country and and so valuable for so many reasons. I love thinking about that place really, really returning to some of its glory. Yeah. And I think it's a perfect example. And, and I think, you know, what I think a lot of folks don't realize is when you lose that acre of wetlands, you lose, you know, 300 to a million gallons of, of water storage, right? And if you, you know, if you pave over it or you, you, know, you, yeah. you dam it up, um, you know, you lose that, you lose that capacity and you see, it's almost like a bladder, right? I mean, I think you, you described it perfectly. I mean, it's a place that, look, you get a hell of a lot more ducks as well, as well in that amazing central flyway, sure. but it's also a way to, um, you know, make yourself much more resilient to these storms. And, you know, I was in, I was a secretary of natural resource in Delaware during hurricane Sandy. And, you know, we had, we have pretty healthy wetlands here. We got about 200, we have a massive wetland complex in the, the entire Delaware Bay shore. Um, and most of it's been protected because of, or conserved because of, you know, work by successive governors from both parties. Um, some of the best duck hunting on the East coast. And we fared a lot better because we had those wetlands to protect communities um, than folks in New Jersey fared because a lot of that had been paved over and they created, you know, massive you know, beach communities and stuff like that. So I think there's, there's lessons. It's not theory, right? It's actually in practice right now. And I'm really excited about this, this new initiative, this Mississippi River Restoration Resilience Initiative that I, I know, Aaron, you've yeah. been thinking about too. I'm yeah. um, trying to drive investments into the Mississippi the same way we have into the Great Lakes, that we have into the, into the Chesapeake, we have the way we have in the Gulf, the way we have in Puget Sound, you know, and then San, San Francisco Bay. I mean, you know, we, we're going to need to have the same level of investment in the kind of the working waterways of the country, you know, things like the Mississippi, things like the Ohio, parts of the Missouri, parts of the Colorado, parts of the, uh, the Delaware, that um, just haven't received the same kind of restoration and resilience investments because folks think about them primarily as a way to move, you know, product as opposed to as the, uh, the incredible ecosystems that they are. Yeah. More good examples. And we're doing some awesome work down in the Mississippi river Delta, right? We've, we've lost a lot of the sediment coming down because of the locks and dams and so on. And then that that's, what's been building that Delta up historically. Then you get the combination of the lack of sediment and the storms coming in and you lose a lot of amazing habitat down there. And luckily we've got some great folks, our Vanishing Paradise crew and, and others that are working on that. And that's another perfect example, right? That this, that this program could, could utilize. Yeah, it's a perfect example. And, and at the same time, as we're not having, you know, as you, as you're not getting the sediment that you need and you have less natural vegetation to suck up the nutrients that are coming off, you know, some of the farm fields up north and yourself, so you get bigger dead zones because you basically create a super highway of like nutrients. So you're getting the worst of the dead zones and you're not getting the sediments. So you're losing, you know, a football field worth of land in Louisiana every few minutes, it seems. So, I mean, I think yeah, and this is a way to correct a lot of those issues. And the nice thing is nothing that you and I just talked about are, is partisan. 
you got Republicans and Democrats that want to restore the Gulf, right? They want to restore the Mississippi. They, you know, folks may disagree about how to pay for it. You know, I mean, we saw just in the last week, Aaron, I mean, we saw one of the most liberal members of Congress join one of the most conservative members of Congress on a plan to restore the uh, the salmon runs on the on the Snake River and in, in, the, in the Columbia Basin. You know, anytime, I don't know, kind of as odd a couple as you could come together with Mike Simpson yeah. and, uh, and, and Earl Blumenauer. But, you know, I think folks are beginning to realize that, they, you know, there's lots of things that folks can fight on in politics, but conservation is a space that folks can come together around. Yeah, those are great points. I love hearing all the possibilities that in my mind just starts running with, with what could be done and, and, you know, what it means for our kids and future generations and people in cities that maybe haven't had enough access and, and, and good habitat to go visit. So glad to see that. I know we, I know we have to jump here soon, Colin. Uh, what do you want to leave us with? What's the take home message for people to, to know about this, to be thinking about and, and to, to go onward with? Yeah. I mean, it's an unprecedented opportunity. Like we're at a moment where, you know, for better or for worse, right. The, there's going to be a lot of spending. Um, they're either going to spend it on, you know, more, um, you know, engineer solutions, which are important, but, or they're going to spend a chunk of things on, on, on natural systems. And um, it's a time to get involved. I mean, I just think, you know, these plans are great, but you know, words are only symbols on a page unless they're actually you know, given kind of true implementation force behind them to turn a vision into a reality. And I think, you know, now is one of those moments where, you know, for any of your listeners, if they have ideas for things they think should be priorities or types of projects they think should be funded, um, they can share them with us. They can share them with their, you know, their local elected officials or their, their federal or state elected officials. But um, now's the time to think big. And I would just, you know, there's going to be, you know, I think the pandemic gives all of us a, a it took, gave all of us a chance to think about, you know, what, what could be. And I think that, you know, at least for me, I'll just speak for myself. I came to the realization that, you know, there's all these things we've been kind of put, putting off um, because we just assume we'll kind of get to it, you know, later down the road. And it keeps adding up and kind of getting worse and worse. And because of that, that deferral, you know, we've, we're seeing, you know, we're probably going to one of the worst fire seasons in history this year. I mean, the drought conditions are just brutal that we're seeing in many parts of the country. You know, I'm really worried about like hurricane season. Um, and at the same time, I'm heartened by, you know, the fact that you know, these issues have become more, more nonpartisan than pretty much any other issue set in the entire country. And so, you know, I, I just encourage your listeners to, you know, don't think of this as something that somebody else is doing. Um, think about, you know, the America's Beautiful Planet, something that they can participate in, that, you know, if they have, you know, their ideas, their priorities, um, to, you know, share them, share them <laughs> loudly um, with folks. And, you know, we're going to try to make sure with the National Wildlife Federation that we're bringing as many resources to bear for this type of work as possible. But, you know, I, I just think this is one of those, those opportunities that 10 years from now, I think we'll be able to look back and say, you know, I'm, I'm glad I was part of it because these are all the massive improvements we saw across the country. There's all the jobs that are created, all, the, all these local economies that were revitalized, all these kids that you know, got to enjoy the outdoors, all these you know, historical inequities that we were able to address um, that all, all were, um, everything was moved in the right direction over the uh, over these nine, 10 years. And I think that's going to be a legacy we can all be proud of. Yes, sir. That would be a beautiful sight. Let's make it happen. Um, well, we good, will. Colin. <laughs> <laughs> I, I appreciate your time. I know you run around like a crazy man all the time from, from meeting to meeting and, and all the things you're up to and, and working a ton. I hope you find some time to get outside, uh, get out there and, and with your kids and, you know, enjoy the fresh air and springtime. It's a beautiful time to be out and just thank you so much for coming and we'll keep talking and keep showing folks how they can get engaged. I think I need a good excuse to come out to Colorado for some, some real hunting. So, you know, maybe we can come up with something. But. 
Yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate what y'all are doing. I appreciate <laughs> yes, what y'all are doing. Really good stuff. Take care. Thanks, man. We are NWF Outdoors.